If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 45. I'm going to read the whole thing together this morning. Uh, I'm using this text as sort of a jumping off point uh, to start a new sermon series in Esther next week. And uh, if you don't know, the book of Esther is a uh, very unusual book, uh, one of the few that uh, doesn't mention the name of God, doesn't mention prayer, doesn't mention a lot of things. And it's a very unusual time period because after the, the pinnacle of the Old Testament being King Solomon being crowned king and enjoying the peace of his realm and, and all that there is to look forward to, um, after the exile in Babylon, now we see God's people under the reign of a foreign king, and we see one of uh, the most beautiful of uh, the people of God in, in terms of Esther being married to this foreign king who uh, is not the greatest ideal husband or king by any stretch of the imagination. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to show you the end of the story uh, from the perspective of the Old Testament of, of, of the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. And I think much of Esther you'll see when we compare these two figures, you'll get a better picture of what's really going on because even the story of Esther is, is also meant to point us to Christ. All the Old Testament is points us to Christ. And I think we're, I'm hoping you're going to see that as we go through uh, the book of Esther over the next few weeks. But with that being said, if you would turn with me uh, to Psalm 45, hear the word of the Lord. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. And many colored robes she has led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we... I have heard this word. We pray that you would help us to embrace it, to 
believe it by faith, to long for its reality, to be brought into this earth that we would see indeed the kingdom of God has become the kingdoms of all of this world. We pray, Father, that you would turn our eyes to Christ, turn our eyes to the kingdom this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in need of a wife. That's not scripture. But it is the quintessential novel, the opening line of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Maybe that's why you uh, recognize those words. Surely she meant this somewhat in jest as a critique of her own culture in which uh, the young ladies of that day, not too different from the ladies of our day, and how they have fantasized about marriage since they were very little girls, and how they have uh, especially thought about that wedding day and all the joy that would be brought to them when they're married to the perfect man, the perfect husband. And to keep that dream alive, Jane Austen always ends every novel with the wedding itself. You'll notice that uh, in all of her books, uh, in all of the, the, the stories, it always ends with the wedding ceremony. Nothing past that. Very little past that. And if you've noticed that in almost every romantic novel, every romantic film that you have ever seen or read, they almost always end that same way at the altar with the husband and wife getting married and they lived. Right? But they never tell the rest of the story. Why is that? Those who are married know. <laughs> It's because marriage on earth is not perfect. And it doesn't always, in every moment, the most thrilling, fulfilling uh, time you have ever had. In other words, it's less than perfect. Uh, I, I mean, that is no offense to any bride here or any husband here. Uh, but of course, we realize that even the Bible itself, if you think about it, ends with a wedding. Now, that's not because the there are going to be problems or pain or conflict that you might have in marriages here. It's not because the husband doesn't love his wife perfectly. It's not because the wife doesn't respect and honor her husband perfectly. She'll be perfect in every way. But rather, it's precisely because we on this side of heaven cannot even fathom what a perfect marriage is. We can't even begin to understand what it might look like. Even heaven itself is described as streets of gold and pearly gates, and that's the best we can think of, but we know it has to be better than that. Even if you try to consider what marriage would look like when you have two perfect people loving each other for all of eternity, what would that look like? Well, the Scripture only gives us a foretaste of that. But in our text this morning, and we'll see uh, throughout the rest of Scripture as well, every earthly wedding somehow points to that perfect wedding with the perfect spouses between Christ and His church, which is the bride. Uh, the, the, the Apostle Paul makes a point of saying that, that even Adam and Eve in the garden was meant to be a, a type that would point to this eventual picture of Christ and His bride. Even when we see Andy and Rebecca walking down the aisle, you should think this is an image of Christ and His bride. This is meant to point us to that glorious future when Christ is finally crowned and His wife is crowned in the new heavens and the new earth and they share in that glory 
together. So in our passage this morning, the psalmist is, is giving us a foretaste of that. He's, he's helping us to see something of that glorious day, probably as he is witnessing the marriage vows between Solomon, King Solomon, and his first wife, the princess of Egypt, the Pharaoh's daughter, before he adds all those other wives and has other problems. Uh, this first marriage seems to be a beautiful one, a holy one. And as the psalmist is there witnessing these things, he is now taken almost in a rapturous moment to a king even greater than Solomon to see something even more glorious than what he is viewing at that moment. I mean, most of us who have been around over the last number of decades, uh, you could probably think of Princess Diana and her marriage and how glorious of an affair that was. But can you imagine King Solomon and all of this wealth, all this great wisdom, all this beauty, and, and just the, the vastness of this kingdom and, 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 and seeing this almost heavenly marriage he then is seen and almost transported, if you will, to a time in the future where he sees something even more glorious. And it helps us to, to look to the future, to the end of the story, even when we're in the midst of a book like Esther, where it doesn't seem all that beautiful. In fact, it's one of the darkest books that we have in the Old Testament. But I, I say that it points to this because of the language that the psalmist uses. He uses many of the same vocabulary that the Song of Solomon uses. In fact, uh, the, the words that are used here, uh, this psalm is very unique. There's no other psalm like it in all of the Psalter. There is no other wedding psalm, royal wedding psalm like this. It's very distinct and, and different from the other psalms in the Psalter. Uh, but what we see in Song of Solomon chapter 3, it's describing Solomon's wedding. It uses the very same language. Meant to point us to something greater than that. Uh, in fact, uh, we also see in Hebrews chapter 1, if you remember from a long time ago when we were there, uh, in that first chapter, the author of Hebrews quotes from this psalm twice to prove the divinity of Christ as he's looking at the earthly king, which again, probably is Solomon. He's pointing us to someone who is greater. And the very fact that he uses divine language to picture this king, either he's flattering Solomon, or he's pointing us to one who is greater than Solomon, who is still yet to come. And so as a result, the psalmist tells us from the very beginning that this psalm is different, perhaps, than many others. His heart overflows as he even considers this topic. He, he, his tongue, he says, is as the pen of a ready scribe, a ready writer. In other words, as a, as a scribe would be know his topic so well, but yet would be delighted to write. He can't help but have his tongue just unleash these words in reference to the king who is to come. So you can see how this passage would inspire a number of hymns. We sang one of them earlier, Ferris, Lord Jesus. When you think about uh, all of creation and all the, the beauty of the stars, and now that we're finally in spring, and can see something of the beauty of spring in Michigan, Jesus is fair. Amen. Jesus is pure more beautiful than anything your eyes have ever seen. And he wants us to see that in comparison to any other person, he is the beautiful Savior, the Lord of the nations, the only God, the only King. And so uh, another hymn, uh, you may not be as familiar with this one, uh, is, is an older hymn, I think, from the 19th century. Uh, Indelible Grace has done a newer version of it that uh, brought it to my attention. Uh, it's called, Has Thou Heard Him 
seen him, known him? Have you ever heard that one or seen that one? No. Um, in that hymn, the, the writer asks the believer, is not, he uses old language, but is not thine a captured heart? He is the chief among 10,000 men. Are you not captured by his beauty? He, he exhorts us in the hymn saying, captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring, let his peerless worth constrain thee, crown him now the unrivaled king. Constantly drawing us back to the beauty of Christ from this psalm, Psalm 45. And it's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He's, he's giving a worthy tribute to one who is greater than Solomon. One who just enraptures his heart. And so he begins to speak of, 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 of a number of things. I want to focus on three here uh, very briefly. I have a number of points this morning, so I won't elaborate the, the n- numbers of them. But he's going to first speak of, of his grace. And then second, he's going to speak of his might. And then third, he's going to speak of his reign. These are three subpoints. I'll have others later. But in terms of his grace, the psalmist speaks of the king as the most handsome of the sons of men. And literally in the Hebrew, if you translate it, literally the, the most handsome of the sons of Adam. In other words, out of every son who has ever lived on the face of the earth, this one is unique. This one is more glorious, more handsome in every way. If you think about it, every other son of Adam was born in sin and has fallen so short of the glory of God that there's nothing that can compare to this one. He's so unique, full of righteousness, full of the glory of God, full of the image of God. You cannot miss it. He is a glorious, a beautiful one. Now, in some sense, you could say, uh, back in 1 Samuel 16 when it's describing David who is the coming king, the, the king after every other king is, is patterned, uh, he is described as a beautiful man, handsome man. So is Solomon. They're both described in this way, but you'll notice in our text this morning, after immediately saying he is the most handsome of all men, he doesn't focus on his outward beauty. Rather, notice what he focuses on. He focuses on the grace that is poured out from his lips. He speaks forth the very words of life, his disciples said. How could we possibly go anywhere else? You have the words of life. They're more precious to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces, the psalmist says. Everything that you say is more valuable, more precious to me than anything this world can offer. His words are true and honorable and pure and lovely Excellent in every way. Everything that that Paul would say, these are things we should think about. These are the things he talks about. These are the things he says. This is how he brings life and edification. In fact, if you think about John chapter 7, if you remember um, the Pharisees and the, the, the the chief priests had sent officers to go arrest Jesus. Do you remember this? And so these officers went out to go arrest him and uh, they sent and they just stood there and listened to him talk. And then they came back, and the Pharisees and the, and the, the, the priests are saying, where is he? Why didn't you bring him? <laughs> and, and they said simply, no one ever spoke like that man, ever. They were so captivated by his words, they could not take him captive. Because his words were gracious, overflowing with grace. That's the first description that's given. Then it talks about his, his great might. And, and the psalmist is pleading for him to ride out in majesty 
ride out with the sword on his thigh. Everything that we just read in Revelation where we finally see him riding with the, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords on his thigh, coming out to finally bring justice upon the earth. He's saying, bring it. I want to see it. Bring your cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Again, another hymn that we normally sing on Palm Sunday is based upon these verses. Ride on, ride on in majesty. We want to see Him come. Bring it into this world, into this time, into our generation. We want to see Him come and reign. The author says in that hymn, O Savior meek, pursue Your road with palms and scattered garments strode. In lowly pomp, ride on. Right on to die. O Christ, your triumphs now begin over captive death and sin. Even though the psalmist is describing a conquering hero, he's also describing this meek Savior who comes in the cause to do battle on behalf of truth and righteousness. And we see this double-edged sword, if you will, that uh, he's described as as carrying on his thigh. We think of uh, the two ways in which the sword that represents his words again uh, bring uh, his victory. On the one hand, his word comes and pierces the hearts of repentant sinners. Immediately, they're struck by his words. And they understand something of their sin, but also understand something of the goodness of God and the, and the gospel and, and understand the forgiveness of sin. On the other hand, that other side of the sword comes to bring condemnation upon the wicked. Again, His Word accomplishes both. Just as in the beginning God created all the world with just the power of His Word, so now Jesus speaks words of salvation and also words of condemnation to those who refuse to come and to bow before His feet. Revelation 1.16, the Apostle John sees a vision of the glorified Christ with this double-edged sword coming out of His mouth to show again the power of God's Word, the power of the coming Christ as King. Then third, the psalmist also speaks of his majestic reign, saying of him in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, this is one of the verses that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 to show that the person that the psalmist is writing of here is not any ordinary man. He is God Himself. He is a king who comes to conquer, who is God Himself. He's not addressing God the Father in this passage, but rather addressing the one who comes out with the sword on his thigh. This is the one of whom God said to David, your son will sit upon the throne forever and ever. This is the fulfillment of the covenant promise that God had given to David. It's the same language that Jacob used way back in Genesis 39, speaking of the scepter that will sit between the, 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 the feet of, of, of Jacob's son, Judah. Finally, the line of Judah has come. And he's come to reign over all. But to clarify that he's speaking as this king as God, he says in verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, this is another verse that the writer of Hebrews is quoting to prove to us that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one that we have been looking for. He is the Messiah. And so this, uh, it, uh, the way Psalm 45 is, is written out, uh, it's, it's, it's a poem that's sort of written out in a, uh, a pattern. And, and this is the very central part of the psalm. The pinnacle of the psalm is when we finally see this king has come and he's anointed. He is the Messiah King. We're meant to see it and, 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 and just stare in wonder that finally he has come. Finally he has arrived. 
and he has enjoyed the oil of gladness far above all men because he is continually full of the Spirit of God. He knows the love of the Lord. He is the love of the Lord. Verse 8 describes a little bit about his heavenly court, uh, the spectacular brilliance of that ivory palace that he is in, the sweet-smelling fragrance of his robes, and then also this delightful sound of stringed instruments that constantly makes the hearts of men glad. Every aspect of a of heavenly courtroom, you're going to see it's all pointing to this divine figure who is the king. In fact, uh, when you think about uh, the book of Esther in comparison to this passage, these are two times in Scripture in which the inner sides of a palace are described. And clearly we have one that's much less in comparison to the Messiah King. Um, in the days of Solomon, the, the, the coming that that kingdom was known as a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy, but now one has come who is greater than Solomon. Much greater time of peace and joy that never ends. Again, one other hymn, but plenty of them that are based upon this psalm, but another one maybe you're familiar with is, is simply titled Ivory Palaces. And in that hymn, the author says this, My Lord has garments so wondrous fine, and myrrh their texture fills, its fragrance reach to this heart of mine, and with joy my being thrills. Again, he's overwhelmed by the beauty of the king. And, and that's the very point of these verses is to fill our hearts with that same joy, that same anticipation that this king would come and we would see him with our own eyes. Finally, if you will, every young woman who has ever been looking for her prince charming, he has finally arrived. He is the perfect man, the perfect husband, the perfect king. And any person would be delighted to be the princess of this king. Of course, the story doesn't end there. Just seeing this king, he has come, he is righteous, he has conquered, he is now enjoying his reign, the king of peace. Uh, but there's more to the story. And even uh, the Lord of the Rings, uh, J.R. Tolkien, um, he, uh, he, he points this out, I think, much more clearly than he does in much of the rest of the story. But here he brings out this marvelous truth that after the battle has won, after the ring of power has been destroyed, after good has triumphed, we see Frodo, the hobbit, the, the main character in the story, uh, he asks permission to start on his journey home. Because we've done it all. It's, it's, it's done. We've gotten the victory. And, and now Aragorn is king, and, and everything is great. This is, this is, this, this is awesome. But uh, the king asks him, won't you stay a little while longer? He says, the end of the deeds that you have shared in has not yet come to pass. There's more to the story. So Frodo wondered, what else could be left? I mean, this is, this is awesome. Everything that we've ever wanted, good is triumphed. But then he stays for a little while, and at midsummer, Aragorn's beautiful fiancée arrives. And Frodo sees her glimmering in the evening with stars on her brow, a sweet fragrance about her, and he's moved with great wonder, and he says this, at last I understand why we have waited. This is the ending. For Tolkien's now pointing us to Revelation 19, where finally the bride is revealed to come and to be with her king, where we're told, let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has finally come. And the bride has made herself Ready. And so we see in verse 9 uh, that at the king's right hand now stands this queen dressed in the finest of gold to take her spot 
next to the king's side and even to be seated on his heavenly throne. In fact, if you think about it, when Paul is using the language in Ephesians 2, verse 6, where he says, already because of what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection, we now are seated with him at his right side in the heavenly throne up in the heavenly realms. He's describing the role of a queen to sit at his right hand because of what he has accomplished already. He has promised us we have a seat at his right hand. We are his beautiful bride. You see? In the same way he has gained that victory, he wants to share that victory with his bride. But before that takes literally, before that takes place literally uh, in the coming kingdom, the psalmist gives these two exhortations to Christ's fiance, if you will, to the church. So here, if you're looking for application, here's the two application points. Number one, forget your past. Number two, obey your Lord. Here's the first one. Forget your past. Just as God told Abraham to leave his country, to leave his people, even to leave his father's house and to go to the land that he would promise him, that he would show him, the psalmist is now telling this original bride from Egypt, if you will, forget your people, forget your past. Unite yourself fully to your husband, to your king. He is now your people. His God is your God. Follow him. Solomon was a type of Christ. It's hard not to see that. His original bride was a type of the church. This alien woman who is now brought into the, the, the very presence of the king, into the very presence of his palace. And now she's to join with him in that glory. Just as Adam was called to leave his parents and unite himself and cleave to his wife, Jesus says to us in the same way, if you think about what he says in the Gospels, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There is a love for Christ that surpasses everything. And when someone knows the love of Christ, they want to join themselves to Christ. It's much easier said than done, right? I don't think you all got that immediately. I know I didn't. Still working on it. But how can it be done? How can you forget your past and cling to Christ? When that hymn that I mentioned to you earlier, uh, it's a great hymn. You really ought to look at the words and listen to it. Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? Right? Uh, the author asked this question. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of this earth. Not a sense of right or duty, but only the sight of peerless worth. What is he saying there? He's saying, merely the law of God itself is not enough to make you forget your past. It doesn't give you that, uh, that ability. But when you catch sight of the beauty of the king, you want him. You want him more than anything else in the world. And you're willing to forgo anything else, all the lesser beauties of this earth, in order to find that greater beauty that is in Christ Jesus. Only a person who has come to love Jesus can overcome the love of the world. If you don't know the love of Christ, the world is still as lovely as it was before. You, your heart won't change. It's only when you've caught sight of his beauty that that changes. Only he who has heard him and seen him and known him can then turn in love toward him because that person knows 
that he is better than anything else in this world, that he's higher, greater than anything else in this world. But the one who doesn't know that, they still waffle back and forth between the world and between Christ. Uh, pastor and author Walter Chantry, uh, he's a Reformed Baptist minister. I don't know if he's passed away yet. I think he's still living, but he's near the end of his life, I guess. Uh, he made this statement in reference to uh, forgetting the past. He said, forget everything. Forget it all. The king will more than make up for it all. Someday you will look back upon the parting with temporal things and think your hesitation so silly and ill-founded when you sit in that ivory palace arrayed in gold at the right hand of your king, you will wonder what you saw ever in those former things. You will never regret it. Forget it all. Forget the past. The king must be your own and only love henceforth. Sounds like a man who knows Christ, who has been walking with him and wants to know him and is yearning to be with him. Then second, in addition to forgetting your past, he also says, and basically in a nutshell, to serve, to honor, and obey your Lord, the King. Again, just as the Apostle Paul points out in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 6, that Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You remember those, that language? Uh, it's the same language that the psalmist is using here uh, in the exhortation to the bride, to bow to her Lord, to serve him with honor and with love. Again, something much easier said than done, right? Something that's not uh, natural to any of us to serve someone else, to consider someone else our master, our Lord. I think I may have told you this story before. I can't tell. if uh, I, I often probably share the same stories. You'll just have to humor me. But I think this is a good one uh, that really fleshes this out. It's a story about a husband and wife who didn't really love each other very much at all. Uh, the, the husband was very demanding, so much so that uh, he prepared a list of rules and regulations for his wife to continually follow, wrote them out for her, this is what you ought to do, and this is what you ought not to do. He insisted as well that she read over the rules every day to make sure she didn't forget and to obey them to the letter. Have you heard this story before? Good. Among other things, his do's and don'ts indicated such details as what time she had to get up in the morning. Got to get up at 6. What he wanted for breakfast to be served each day of the week has to be this, not that. And also how the housework should be done. I want it this way, not that way. Make sure the towels are this way. Make sure you carpet, do it this way, etc. Then after several long years, the, her husband died. As time passed, the woman fell in love again with another man who, who this time dearly loved her. Soon they were married. And the, the husband did everything he could to make his wife happy, continually showering her with tokens of affection and appreciation. One day as she was cleaning the house, she found tucked away in a drawer the long list of commands that her previous husband had written. And she looked over it, studied it, and it dawned upon her that even though her current husband hadn't given her any such list, she was doing all of these things out of love because she was so well-loved herself. Not out of obligation, but because she just so loved the man who loved her. Now, obviously God wasn't, it's not the perfect analogy because God was never like that first man. Some people think that he is when they don't understand the gospel. They think that he's this hard, cruel taskmaster who's constantly saying, don't do this, don't do that, you've got to do it this way or else you go to hell. That's, that's what they think. 
The law of God was never meant to save you. The law of God was made to see, help you to see, that you have to find the love of God in Christ Jesus to be saved. The law of God is meant to condemn you, to point you to the one who can save you, who can redeem you, who can restore you, who loves you and wants the best for you. As you can imagine, Christ is a much better husband than any man in this room. <laughs> uh, not too many amens, please. <laughs> he loves his bride better than any of us ever will. So when the, when the psalmist is telling the bride to bow to her husband, her Lord, He's not telling her to do anything she doesn't already want to do. You see? He, he's not uh, trying to say, okay, you've got to bow to him now. She wants to because she sees how deeply she is loved by the king. And that's apparent both to the king as well as to everyone else. And we see the king is so greatly pleased with her because she knows how pleased she is. Notice in verse 12 how the bride now shares in the king's wealth. She's she's beginning to share in everything that he has. The people of Tyre, he says, will seek out her favor with many gifts. Because of her union with Christ Jesus now, all of his riches are hers, and she shares in his great wealth. Beautiful picture. Then look in verses 13 and 14. Now the psalmist also says the bride is beginning to share somehow in his glory. In her chambers, she's wearing these many colored robes interwoven with gold, sharing in his heavenly beauty. Because of her close intimacy with Christ, she becomes glorious, reflecting his glorious image. Again, think of this you know, person who, 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 who did not come from this background, who did not have any of this, is now sharing in his glory. Then lastly, verse 15. The bride also shares in the king's Gladness. Again, notice the first picture is, is this king is the perfect man who constantly enjoys the oil of gladness of God because he's so full of the Spirit. And now she's beginning to reflect that same gladness, enjoy that same joy that he has. So then finally, after seeing that reflection of the divine king now in the face of his glorious queen, the psalmist shares this glorious benediction upon the king. It's actually using, you can't see it in English, but in, uh, in the Hebrew, he's actually using uh, masculine pronouns. He's now referring back to the king in verse 16 and 17. But she enjoys that same benediction. He says this to the king, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever." And ever Again, this might seem strange to try to apply this to Christ when we think of terms of sons. But again, the writer of Hebrews is doing this. He's, he's using the same language. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 13, he says this, that through Christ's sufferings, he is bringing many sons to glory. And he says, behold, I and the children God has given me. He's using that same language to say, yes, there's Christ and his bride, but in that picture that's through the church through the bride that many sons are coming to glory and so he speaks of these children as those all those who come to faith in christ jesus through the gospel preaching of the church including both the covenant children who come to know the lord as well as those who are grafted into the vine they have seen the glory the beauty of christ and now want to to be joined with him in that sense they will be princes on earth he says Think about it, uh, even in terms of the, the promised land in the Old Testament, just that sliver, little piece of land that they were thinking of 
But when Jesus talks about those who know Christ, he says, you will inherit all the earth. You will be princes over all the earth from every tribe, nation, and tongue. In every generation, God's name will be praised. Again, this is all covenant language that God had promised David, that he would have many sons and his son would sit on the throne of God forever and his name would be praised in every generation. Now we're seeing this. Christ the King, his name is, is praised. And we talked about um, in the biblical theology segment that we do on Sunday nights uh, in the Psalms, it says that the, the church, uh, as we are singing his praise as Christ is enthroned here on earth, we're seeing that here in Peru, nations all over the world, we're seeing Christ is enthroned on the praises of Israel, on the praises of his people. But this psalm was meant to point us to the future, to remind us that this is the reality. This is the end of the story. Let's not get lost in the details of Esther. Let's not get lost in the details of what happens in Second Kings after Solomon and his sons ruin everything. What's the end of the story? The end of the story we find finally in Revelation, where finally the groom comes back. He makes that promise, surely I am coming soon. The Spirit and the bride say what? Come. And all those who hear these words as they're written in the Word and as they're preached, what do they say? Come. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the end of the story. We're meant to long for the end of the story. But only those who have seen the beauty of the king want the story to end. Think about where you stand with that. If, if you don't know, you haven't heard him, seen him, known him, you'll never get this story. It won't make sense to you. In fact, you'll be looking for other stories. You'll constantly be looking for another story, a different ending. It will never satisfy you. This, this is the main character of the story that God has written. It's all about Christ. Don't lose sight of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us as we wander uh, through this life, as we go through many uh, valleys and over many mountains, and as we wrestle and struggle with temptation as we continue to, to find our place and understand how you've gifted us and created us to be very unique uh, creatures to reflect the image of, of God and Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that our place in the story is at the feet of Jesus. Help us to cling to him by faith. Help us to walk by faith, looking to please him in love because we are so well loved by him. Father, we pray that indeed uh, our voices would be added to that final celebration at the Lamb's High Feast where we sing that all glory and honor and praise and wisdom and power belong to our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray these things.